At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out the Word of God, and I want you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And the book of Ruth is actually the eighth book in the Old Testament. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you have Joshua, and then you have Judges, and then you have Ruth. So you ought to be able to locate that book. Now, whenever we move into the Old Testament, or we could more accurately describe it as being the Hebrew Scriptures, my mind always goes to the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter number 10 and verse 11, where Paul tells us this. He says, now these things happen to them. Who are the them? That would be the people of the Hebrew scriptures, the people of the Old Testament. They happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. And so although the events we're going to be looking at today happened more than 3,000 years ago, the lessons there are highly practical. The principles are highly relevant, and we need to lean into them because they were written as an example for us and for our instruction. Now, the series we're going to begin today on the book of Ruth, I have entitled God Behind the Scene. And a major theme in the book of Ruth is one of my favorite truths about God. And that is the theme of God's providence. And you might say, well, what do you mean God's providence? Well, I have a definition of God's providence here. This is what it means. It means God's purposeful acts in governing the world in accordance with his eternal plan and for his ultimate honor and glory. And that theme of providence of God is a very prominent theme in the book of Ruth. What does this mean, God's providence? Well, it means that he is always active. It means that he is at work in all the events of life. He is at work in the blessings that we experience. He is at work in the people that we meet. He is at work in the circumstances that we face. It means that he is active and at work even in the midst of adversity that may come in our life. Even in the midst of some heartache that we may experience. Maybe it's the adversity of a dire medical diagnosis. Maybe it's the heartache of the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a child with a severe handicap. Maybe it's even the devastation of a hurricane. He is always active and at work, even in the midst of adversity and the heartache that we experience. Now, let's be real. When we come face-to-face -face with adversity and heartache in our life, I think there's a very common reaction that we have. At least I have it. When that suddenly is there in my life, my most initial reaction is to say things like this. I don't understand. I mean, God, why are you bringing this into my life? 
this is confusing to me. I don't understand this. I mean, how are you at work when you're allowing me to experience this? Why, 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 why are you doing this in my life? Well, God's providence gives us some hope and some comfort. Think about this. It would be worse if you set aside God's providence. It would be worse if the events, the adverse events that came in our life were merely a product of cosmic fate, you know, some sort of randomly cruel thing that happens to us. Providence points to the hope that the adversity that we face is part of the plan of God. That we can trust him even without really understanding what he is doing. Now, I love the book of Psalms. And one of the things that's so good about the book of Psalms is there's just this fresh realness about them. And you see the psalmists offer having that same kind of confusing reaction when adversity first comes to them. For example, in Psalm chapter 10, verse 1, the psalmist says this. Think about this. You probably have had the same reaction I have. When adversity comes, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? See, there's emotional honesty there. The psalmist is saying, I don't understand this. You know, why are you allowing this in my life? But what's encouraging is that later on, the psalmist affirms something. He goes on down in verse 16 of Psalm 10. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. Even though I don't really understand what's going on, I want to cling to your providence. I want to seek refuge in your character and your providence. I believe you are the king of all things and that you are at work in all events. Now, we're gonna actually watch all of this unfold in the book of Ruth. And one question that is answered in the book of Ruth is this. Can God be trusted when we encounter painful adversity? Can God be trusted when we encounter painful adversity? We're gonna see answer to that in the book. Now, the very existence of the book of Ruth, just so we realize, we come from a different worldview and a different culture. The very existence of this book was counter to the cultures of the times. You see, in ancient cultures, they had a notoriously low view of women. In fact, many of the Hebrew scribal leaders held that same kind of notorious low view of women. But the heart of God is very different from that. God has always had a high view of women. In fact, when he created Eve, he created her to be a co-regent with Adam. When God gave to her the title of helper to Adam, that exact same term is used to describe each member of the Godhead in Scripture. God has a very high view of women, and Jesus valued women. And we can see that from all the various interactions they had with him and all the major aspects of his earthly ministry. God has a high view of women. And there are two books in the Old Testament that are named for women and are devoted to their story. 
And of course, one is the book of Ruth and the other is the book of Esther, exactly. And we see God using both of them in pivotal ways. But just don't forget, this was very countercultural for such a thing to happen. Now, I want to give us a little bit of backdrop to the book. So if you have your Bible open to Ruth 1, I want you to notice verse 1, the first major phrase that is given to us. It says, now it came about in the days when the judges ruled or when the judges governed. This setting of the book comes in a very dark and black time in the nation of Israel. It was a time in Israel of spiritual decline. It was a time of moral decay. It was a time of political corruption. Stop me if any of this sounds familiar to anybody, okay? It was also an era, there were eras of anarchy in the nation. So there was spiritual decline, there was moral decay, there was political corruption, there were eras of anarchy. And this era of the judges is summarized in scripture in nine words. It happens at the end of the book of Judges where it says this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, I'm seeing that a whole lot more in our culture today. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Here's what happens in the book of Ruth. That was the dark black period in the nation of Israel's history. And in Ruth, God pulls back the curtain. And he lets us see some bright light in the midst of the darkness of that time. We can see through the book of Ruth, even though it was a dark black time in the nation, God was at work. God was drawing people to himself. God was growing people. God was using people all to accomplish his eternal plan. Isn't that just like God? Just like God to bring a surpassing triumph out of sorrowful tragedy? It's the book of Ruth. Now, I want to lay out for you, just so you have a little sense of how Ruth goes. There's four chapters. We're going to be covering one chapter each week. And this is just an outline, and it breaks down chapter by chapter by chapter. In chapter number one, we see providence and adversity. In chapter number two, we see providence and grace. In chapter three, we see providence and character. In chapter four, we see providence and provision. Just in terms of location, chapter one is in Moab. Chapter two is in a field. Chapter three is on the threshing floor. And in chapter four, we're gonna find Ruth in the royal line of the Messiah. That'll be interesting to see. Time-wise, chapter one, 10 years. Next chapter, a few weeks. Chapter three, just one day. And then chapter four, about one year. And then also, just looking at Ruth, and we're going to be introduced to them and her and Naomi, but just looking at those two, in chapter one, we have Ruth's decision, chapter two, Ruth's devotion, then Ruth's character, then Ruth's provision in chapter four. When we look at Naomi, who will be a central character, we see Naomi embittered in chapter one, verse 21. We see Naomi encouraged in chapter two and verse 20. 
We see Naomi expectant in chapter 3 and verse 18, and we see Naomi elated in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. So I, I give you all that just so you know where we're headed. You have a little bit of a handle on the way the book flows. Now, before we actually get into chapter number 1, I want to talk about the purposes for the book of Ruth. And there are several of them. Purpose number one is to demonstrate faithfulness and godliness amid infidelity and apostasy. Yes, even when there's infidelity uh, to God and apostasy, there can be faithfulness and godliness that exists. Second purpose behind the book is to emphasize that Gentiles are not outside the scope of God's grace and love. We're going to see that very clearly as one of the enemies of Israel gets a very special role in Israel's history. Third purpose behind the book is to underscore that God is faithful in blessing those who walk with him despite the degeneracy of the age. Despite what's going on around us, he will bless us when we are faithful to him. Fourth purpose is to illustrate redemption. We're talking about the kinsman redeemer. We'll talk more about that. But that's really a picture of what Christ is going to come to do. And we're going to see the kinsman redeemer, this illustration of redemption in action in the book. And then... A fifth purpose of the book of Ruth is to highlight that God accomplishes his purposes even in the midst of a wicked world. Aren't you glad to know that? Even though the world turns wicked, he will still accomplish his purposes. All right, we got to get through chapter number one. So here we go. Let me give you an outline of chapter number one. We have the background in verses one to five. We have the departure in verses six to seven. We have discussions that occur in verses eight to 13. We have decisions that are made in verses 14 to 18. And then we have the return that occurs in verses 19 to 22. Now, one of the things we're gonna see is that chapter one is a chapter of decisions. There's a lot of decisions that get made in chapter number one. So let's begin first by looking at the background of the book. Let's go back to verse 1. It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land of Israel. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So let's just take a look at some of what's going on. There is a famine that is going on in the land of Israel. Why is there a famine in the land of Israel? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter number 28, God gave some instructions to the nation of Israel as they were gonna go into the land. And he said this, if you practice obedience before me, I will bring blessings and prosperity to the nation. On the other hand, he said, if you are disobedient to me, I will bring cursing and adversity upon the nation. And in the Old Testament, famines are often directly connected to God's discipline of the nation of Israel. Well, there's a certain man of Bethlehem. Hmm, Bethlehem, where have we heard that before? Well, of course, David is, King David is born in Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So it gets our attention just a little bit. And notice this man 
of Bethlehem, it says, went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Now, that's some very significant information. You say, what's Moab? Well, Moab was a long-term enemy of Israel. The people in Moab were known to worship the god Chemosh. And the god Chemosh has very, very deeply woven into the worship of that god was child sacrifice. And not only that, but the ugliness of ritual sex that would take place is part of the worship of the god of Chemosh. And sometimes, you know, those words just slip out of our mouth, you know, like child sacrifice. It was ugly, my friends. What they would do is they would have the idol of Chemosh and they would, the priests of Chemosh would heat up the lap of the idol of Chemosh. And then when it got to be virtually red hot, they would place an infant right in the lap, which would literally be fried right there in front of people. This was part of the worship of Moab. And it appears this man from Bethlehem Rather than addressing the vertical issue between the nation and the famine they were experiencing, decided to merely operate on the horizontal plane, thinking only about himself and his family. And so he chooses to leave the land of promise and head off to the land of compromise. Do you remember the command that God gave to the nation when they went into the land? His command to them was, possess the land. Possess the land. Is that what this man's doing? Not at all. In fact, it says he went down into Moab to sojourn, which is a word that really means a temporary stay. You know, he rationalized, this is only gonna be for a little while we're going to go into Moab. Well, we learn a little more in verse two. It says, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were from Bethlehem and Judah and they entered the land of Moab. And then we have these little words and they remained there. This was more now than a sojourn. They were remaining there. In verse three, we learn that Elimelech dies And the story shifts more to his wife, Naomi. In chapter four, we learn that her sons took Moabite women as wives. They married Moabite girls. Now, the nation of Israel was not to intermarry with the people around the promised land. We learn from Ezra chapter nine and verse one, that included the Moabites. Now, why did God say that? I don't want you to intermarry with those people. Well, his concern was that if you intermarry with them, they will turn your hearts from me, Yahweh God, to other gods. Well, we learn from verse five that what ends up happening is that the two sons die, each leaving a widow, and now we have three widows, the two widows of the sons, and then Naomi. Now, it's important to remember, because it's different than our our day today, that being a widow or an orphan in those days was the worst plight that could happen to you. There were no government subsidies. There was no provision or protection. 
In fact, widows were marked women in the worst way. The only hope that they had was to be remarried. And if you were an older woman, like Naomi, that wasn't going to be an option. As I said, chapter number one is a chapter of decisions. We have the decision by Elimelech to take his family to Moab. Then we have the decision by Elimelech Elimelech to remain there. And then after Elimelech dies, Naomi makes the decision to stay in Moab. And then her two sons marry pagan wives. And then Naomi decides to return to the promised land. And we're going to see as we go through the chapter that Ruth and Orpah, the two daughters-in-law, decide then to accompany her back to Bethlehem. Then Naomi decides to try to dissuade them from coming with her. And then Orpah decides to stay in Moab. She was persuaded by Naomi. But Ruth decides to go with Naomi. She persisted from the persuading that she was doing. A lot of decisions. And we need to be reminded that the decisions we all make, men and women, have ramifications, they have repercussions, they have consequences. Someone has put it this way. The decisions you make, make you. And man, that is really true. Some of us who are older could say, yeah, I could testify. All of us who are younger need to Remember this, the decisions you make, make you, and not only affect you, but affect other people. This is why it is wisest when we make decisions to align them with God's truth. Now, I want to look at the departure that occurs in verses 6 and 7. The decision is made with everything happening with all of this death that has occurred to return to Bethlehem. By the way, in the Hebrew, that word return occurs 12 times in verses 6 to 22. You'll see it over and over again, return, return, return. Sometimes it's translated turn back or, you know, gone back, but this idea of returning is very, very prominent. By the way, this is the first wise decision that we have seen to go back to Bethlehem. But I do want you to notice this. You know, it's easy when we just look at this and we say, she decides, Naomi, to go back to Bethlehem. And we think, well, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. It was a big deal <laughs> to go from where they were back to Bethlehem was going to be 50 to 60 miles by foot. You know, they couldn't grab a bus. They couldn't catch a train. They couldn't call an Uber. No, if you were going to go back, you would be walking 50 to 60 miles by foot. And not only just walking, not on a flat plain, but they would have to go up through the mountains of Moab. Then they would have to go 4,500 feet down into the Jordan Valley. Then they would have to go 3,750 feet back up to Bethlehem. This was a big time journey and a very dangerous journey to go on. Now, it's interesting what happens in verse 6. It says that Naomi had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord, this is the word Yahweh, the God who is a personal God, she had heard that Yahweh had visited the people in Israel, giving them food once again. 
And I think when she talks about Yahweh here, it's, it's acknowledging that Yahweh had done this. She was acknowledging God's providence. God works. He does things. And then that leads us to the discussions we want to look at very quickly in verses 8 to 13. And as you, we don't have time to read all the verses, but as you read through this, it's important, I think, to read between the lines a little bit in verses through 8 through 13. As I read between the lines, it's very obvious to me that Naomi had spoken about Yahweh God to her daughters-in-law. Notice the end of verse 8. She says there, may the Lord deal kindly with you, not Chemosh, but may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And then in verse 9, she prays for them. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. May he lead you to a new husband. Now, I remind you again, the only hope for a young widow was to remarry. And the only hope for an older widow was to depend on her adult children. And she didn't have any anymore. Now, one of the surprising things in in these verses is this, that Naomi, knowing again about Chemosh and the pagan situation in Moab, she surprisingly tries to dissuade her daughters-in-law from coming with her. We see that in verses 11 to 13. And we ask the question, why? Why? Well, I think this is just my perspective on this. I think she's like many of us when we're facing severe adversity in our life. We become spiritually near-sighted. I think Naomi's eyes were riveted on the circumstances that she was experiencing. They were circumstances that left her confused, they left her hurting, they left her bewildered. And she, I think, has no hope or confidence that God has a positive plan in everything that has happened. She becomes very self-focused. In fact, look at the end of verse 13. She says to her daughters-in-law, for it is harder for me than for you. Literally, in the original, it says, it's more bitter for me than for you. I mean, you lost husbands. I lost a husband, but I also lost my two sons, which are my only hope coming out of the situation I find myself in. You know, here's another thing I, th- I suspect she was thinking. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I'm a widow who has no hope. How much harder is it going to be in Bethlehem if I bring two other widows with me? You know, the added weight of responsibility to worry about them, not only worry about me. I think that's part of her thinking here. Well, then that leads us to decisions that occurs in verses 14 to 18, what happens is that Orpah decides to stay in Moab. Ruth is demonstrably different from that. Look at verse 16. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people, the people of Israel, will be my people. And your God, Yahweh, will be my God. 
And verse 17, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Wow, she declares allegiance to Naomi and allegiance to the Lord, which I believe is clear evidence that Ruth had faith in Yahweh God. I mean, she addresses him as Yahweh in verse 17. And she's basically saying, I'm gonna forsake everything. I'm gonna forsake my family here in Moab and I'm gonna go with you to Bethlehem which she knew in her mind would likely mean she would never marry because she would be a Moabite in Israel. Not much prospect for marriage in that situation at all. You know, when she says in verse 17, may the Lord do to me and worse, she was actually taking up an official oath. You can see another example of that in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 13. And scholars tell us that when they took up this official oath, they would often make a symbolic gesture across their throat. May the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. Which then leads us to the return in verses 19 to 22. Now remember, when they're coming back to Bethlehem, Naomi's been gone for 10 years. Naomi has lost her husband and lost her two sons. She's coming back totally penniless. She's been on this 50 to 60 mile trek, no doubt completely dirty from the trip. And not only that, she has a young Moabite widow accompanying her. In verse 19, it says, they both came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred. There was this buzz of excitement. <laughs> Look at Naomi's back. They were, she, they were just gonna get down there and sojourn for a while. They've been gone so long. There was a social commotion that was happening. And the women were saying, is this Naomi? I mean, the one who left and she's back. And Naomi says to them in verse 20, hey, 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 whoa, whoa. Don't call me Naomi. The word Naomi means pleasant. She's basically saying, hey, look, I left as a pleasant one with a husband and sons. Now I want you to call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She says, I'm coming back and I'm no longer a wife. And I'm no longer a mother. And I have no hope of remarriage. You know, I believe that Naomi was coming back in the midst of what I like to call an emotional famine. And bitterness was beginning to grow in her heart. Think about this. I think this is really true. Bitterness grows in the darkness of self-focus. Spend a little time just pondering that. Bitterness grows in the darkness of self-focus. Bitterness and resentment is like acid. It degrades its container. And that's why 
The author to the Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. Watch out that no bitter root of unbelief rises up among you. For whenever it springs up, many are corrupted by its poison, by its acidity. Not only the individual who has bitterness and resentment, but the people around the individual. What's happening? Well, I think Naomi feels like she has nothing. But Yahweh is still there, right? And he has a plan. She feels like she has nothing, and yet she had Ruth there who was dedicated to her. I'm gonna care for you all of the rest of your life. And by the way, she was gonna become Ruth a pivotal part of the plan that Yahweh has. I want you to look at verse 22. There's a couple of things I want you to notice in verse 22. The first one, it says, Naomi returned and with her, Ruth the Moabitess. (laughs) Ruth the Moabitess. A label that she carries throughout the events that are to follow. It's the way the people in Israel and Bethlehem called her. Ruth the Moabitess. You know, in our culture today with the events that are going on, things that are happening in Russia and then the Ukraine and everything else, it'd be like someone being in our midst here and they would come to church on Sunday morning and people would go, there's Ruth the Russian. (laughs) Yeah, can I introduce you to Ruth the Russian? That's the idea here. Ruth the Moabitess. Second thing I want you to notice is that when they return to Bethlehem, it says at the end of verse 22, it's at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then the wheat harvest was to follow closely after that. That tells us they were there in late April and early May. And thus the chapter ends. And we're left hanging. I mean, what's going to happen? I mean, will Naomi's emotional famine continue on? Will will both of them fall into permanent poverty? Does God have a plan? Will God provide for their needs? Well, that's why we've got to study the rest of the chapters of the book. But I do, as we like to do, want to draw some life lessons from what we've seen today. Here's the first one. If you make a bad decision, be quick to make a better decision. If you make a bad decision, decisions who you make will make you, then be quick to make a better decision to repent and make a decision that will line up with God's word and his directives. That's a good life lesson. Another one, be alert to the toxicity of bitterness. Be alert to it. I like to call bitterness and resentment emotional cancer. I've had two dealings personally with cancer. I have an adult daughter who's dealing with a very serious case of cancer. And one thing I've learned about cancer is cancer's not satisfied till it spreads to every part of your body. And the same thing is true with bitterness. You think, well, I'll just harbor it over here. No, no. It will spread. Third life lesson. 
When you are face to face with adversity, turn to the Lord, not from the Lord. Very important thing to remember. Turn to the Lord, not from the Lord. I want you to ponder this perspective. And and even this week, I want you to think about this perspective. There's a lot of truth here. Mystery in his plan does not mean there's no purpose in his plan. See, we can get on the edge of some panic, but we need to remember that mystery in his plan, even though we don't know what he's doing, does not mean there's no purpose in his plan. Proverbs 23, 18 says, surely there is a future. We don't always feel like that when we're under the pile of adversity and your hope will not be cut off. You remember the name of John Newton? He composed a pretty famous song called, what is it? Amazing Grace. He has an interesting perspective he shares. He wrote these words. He said, I long to have a more entire submission to his will and a more steadfast confidence in his word, to trust him and wait on him, to see his hand and praise his name in every circumstance of life, great and small. And then he goes on to say this, and why should we not trust him at all times Which part of our past experience can charge him with unfaithfulness? Men and women, we are going to stare hardship and adversity in the face. And when we stare hardship and adversity in the face, we need to do three things. We need to remember who he is, his character. We need to recount what he has done in my life and for me, and then we need to review his promises. When we stare hardship and adversity in the face, we need to remember who he is, we need to recount what he has done, and we need to review his promises. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it is alive and powerful. It gives us perspective that we need in life, and we just acknowledge that to be true. And I would pray that as we study our way through the book of Ruth, that you would just refresh our perspective. Give us a perspective of hope, even in the midst of horribly difficult adversity that we may be facing, whether it's now or next month or next year. And may we honor you in the way that we respond to trust you in the midst of adversity, to remember who you are, to recount what you have done. And then just to simply rejoice. We thank you for all this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.